like I said, I knew two things growing up. One was church, one was baseball. Got my education paid for by baseball, and here I am today in front of you because of the church. So anyway, I guess it worked out. Like for you, if you've got your Bible handy, I want you to turn with me to a scripture that we referred to a few weeks ago in sort of introducing one of the messages in this uh, sermon series. I'd like for you to look at Matthew chapter 7. Look at the last two verses, verses 28 and 29. And you won't see these on the screen, so if you've got your Bible, turn there. And if not, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll read them to you. But Jesus has just gotten done with the greatest sermon ever. And in Matthew 7, 28, it says, When Jesus had finished this sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority, not like their scribes. The scripture we'll look at today easily can be forgotten, easily can be overlooked as cliché, as, well, I've heard that a hundred times before. That's a lesson I learned as a kid. Well, I'm not sure that really applies today. Or, or we walk out of here and we just sort of forget to apply it. And I think you'll agree with me as we look at the Scripture, particularly the closing verse of today's passage, that this is a, a passage and a verse that has drastic consequences for how we will live, and it's so easy to forget it. And in thinking about just the power and the astonishment and the authority that Jesus created with his teaching, I just wanted to take a side note this morning and let you know that regardless of whether you determine at the end of this sermon today that the passage of scripture that we'll look at is directly applicable to right, right where you need it today, I want you to know that Jesus is always applicable and directly needs to be applied to whatever you need today. And so just as his teaching produced astonishment, so he who is our risen Savior today, produces astonishment. He has authority and power. He is alive. And though he died and was buried, he, the Bible says, on the third day was raised again. We don't serve a dead Savior. We serve a risen Lord. And so if you need power today in your life, if you need deliverance, if you need freedom, if you need whatever it may be, peace, comfort, if you need salvation today, Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who can provide that. I can't give it to you. I am simply a messenger that's hopefully going to make sense out of what God wrote down. Jesus alone can give that to you. Don't leave today without seeing him, not just what he taught, but seeing him. And so as we've been in this series over the last few weeks, we'll have this week, next week, and the following week, and then we'll wrap it up. It'll be a total of eight messages in this series called The Greatest Sermon Ever. And of course, I told you before that uh, if you are coming here today thinking you're going to hear the greatest sermon ever from me, then I apologize. It's not going to happen. It's already been preached, and so I hopefully will just pass it along to you. Two things make a great sermon, I think. One, does it come from God? And certainly this today comes directly from God. And secondly, does it change lives? If you apply the Scripture today, it'll change your life. Whether your life is already changed, whether you think you've got one foot in heaven already because you're just half perfect to begin with, Fine, but this scripture will change your life. I guarantee you it will if you'll apply it. And so we've looked at, over the last few weeks, this is week six, we've looked at the idea that this is Jesus giving out the terms of his kingdom. And every week I've told you these two verses. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus begins to preach and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And then in verse 23 of the same chapter, the, the, Matthew records that Jesus went around to the synagogues in different towns and so on, preaching the good news of the kingdom. 
And so then Jesus gets to where he gathers his disciples together and all who were there listening in Matthew chapter 5, and he begins to lay out. Here's the king giving the terms of his kingdom. And so the very first week we learned that we are, we are invited to come into the kingdom. Jesus wants us to be a part of it. He's not trying to keep us out, but we've got to come to him on his terms. That means we, we come empty-handed. I have nothing good to offer to Jesus. I have nothing. It's only by his grace that I can even approach him. I place my trust in him. I receive salvation. He invites us into his kingdom, but only on his terms. Then we looked at our function of being salt and light. And then we looked at the fact that we must decide whether we're going to be religious or whether we're, going to, whether we're going to be devoted, completely devoted to him. Also, that we must die to the desire for human approval. We must view God as the only spectator that matters. Remember that he is waiting to reward. He never misses an opportunity. And then last week, we looked at the, the scripture that is particularly challenging, I think, in a lot of, uh, a lot of our lives, uh, that God's people are to be consumed by nothing but his kingdom and his righteousness. Not our material possessions, not our physical safety, not our security, not to be consumed by any of that, but only consumed by his kingdom and his righteousness, trusting God to handle all the rest of the stuff. And so this morning, we pick it up in Matthew chapter 7 and the, verse, the first 12 verses. And as I said, this will be cliche to some of us because in this we'll find the golden rule, which we have known probably for a long, long time. Look at with, uh, with me the first six verses in Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, there's a log in your eye. Hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't give, to, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample with them, with, trample them excuse me, with their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus Get specific at the very beginning here. We are dealing today with, I believe, what if we will take this and apply it, what will give us the opportunity to have right relationships with as many people as possible. You know as well as I do, there are some relationships in our lives that simply cannot be made right. We have tried, we have efforted. I would say don't give up, but we understand there's a lot of ground to cover there. But I want to put before you today that if we apply this scripture, both specifically and then generally, as Jesus will end with here in just a few minutes, I think we'll see our relationships get a whole lot better. So let's look at specifically, what does he say about how we should approach relationships with other people? And you know as well as I do that relationships with other people can control you. They can beat you down. They can make you feel great. They can make you feel awful. They can ruin your life. They can make it better. And so today, this isn't something we say, well, this isn't really a big deal. This is a huge deal. I don't want to ever discount the fact that the relationships you have are very, very important. They are huge in your life. We cannot go through life as stoics, though sometimes I try to do this, and feel as if I should be completely unaffected by anything that happens to me or by anything anybody does. We are affected by those things, and we all, somewhere inside of us, even the most hardened person here today, really wants something to be right with other people. We are created to be in relationship not only with God but with other people. The Bible said in Genesis that it was not good for man to be alone. God said, you know what? I want to give him somebody to be with. We are created to be in relationship. And ultimately, we're created to be in right relationship. So this stuff is a huge deal. And so Jesus gets specific at first. In the first four verses, if you're following along in the back of your bulletin, you like to do that. You can fill in the blanks. If not, 
no big deal. But the first he talks about that we should avoid criticism. Avoid criticism. Nobody in this room would claim that they are a critical person. So we, of course, are talking about everybody who didn't come today. But just in case you find yourself from time to time being a little bit critical, Jesus speaks against it. He says, don't judge so that you won't be judged. For with the same judgment you use, you will be judged. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, there's a log in your eye. And he's talking about a critical spirit. Now, what he's not saying here, when he says don't judge, we, we abuse this, this scripture, I think. Well, don't judge me. You're not my judge and this and that. You know, I've heard that said. I remember when I was a high school teacher and you'd make uh, basically discretionary judgments about a, a particular student's behavior. And they'd say, well, don't judge me. You don't know who I am. And I think, you know, just forget it, okay? Just just let it go. I'm making a discernible judgment, a, ba- a very wise decision about your behavior. He's not talking about here that we should play dumb, that we should just ignore everything that anybody does, that we should just go through life and say, well, it's not my place to judge. Who am I to say this or that? And in today's society, tell me if that's not the case, that everybody else is allowed to make judgments, but God's people. And so we, we should not judge. We should not speak on absolute truth, and so on and so forth. Jesus is not saying that. What he's saying is that we should not be fault finders, that we should not have critical spirits, that we should not be looking for the worst, that we should not be gossiping and going around and talking about the faults of other people. And you know those folks as well as I do. And unfortunately, we probably in this room have a few folks who are struggling to overcome the habit of fault finding of always looking and seeing the worst and always having to talk about it and always having to discuss it. And it's a trap, and it's an easy one to fall into. And it's very difficult to avoid criticism because we see a lot of things in other people that are just wrong. But Jesus says, look, avoid criticism. He says, what's what's the deal about that? He, He sort of hints toward a scripture in Romans chapter 14 And you don't have to turn there, but if you'd like to write the reference down, Romans 14.10 says that we will each stand before the judgment seat of God. Why should we not take a critical approach to everyone that we come into contact with? Why? Because we're not the final judge. We're not the final court. And in fact, each of us will stand before God. And of course, today, I want you to understand that based upon my personal experience just this morning, I was with a family 30 minutes after the father. The husband, the grandfather, went to the judgment seat of God. He went before God. And I was there. And I thought about it this morning. We will all be judged. Every single one of us. Every one of us will be judged. But we are not the judges for each one as far as eternity is concerned. So we need to understand we are not to be judgmental and critical because we're not the final authority to begin with. Not only that... But the Bible makes it clear here that it comes back around. You had that happen to you before? You sort of gotten on your high horse from time to time, and you started talking about this or that, that this person does or that group does, and all of a sudden somebody turns around and says, well, you know, you're talking about them being critical. I mean, it kind of sounds like you're being the same way. And Oh, no, you know, I'm just, I'm, I, I'm just calling, you know, calling it what it is, you know, and, and we, we're just being honest then. You know, I'm just being brutally honest. And instead of being critical, we're honest and and, and it often comes back around, and, and Jesus makes a point here that if you hold others to, to the standard of the, of the law in its fullest degree, and you can't claim ignorance when it's turned back around on you. Well, I didn't know that. Uh, that doesn't really apply to me. Certainly that's a, an issue for some of us. And he makes the point that we often miss the huge sin in our own lives 
by constantly pointing out the smaller sins in other people's lives. And so we, we use this to compare ourselves to other people. Boy, isn't that a trap to fall into? To think that if, well, I'm a little bit ahead of this person, well, I don't do what they do, and good grief. You know, I, well, I'm thankful I'm not like them. And instead of comparing ourselves to the Word of God, we constantly look around and say, well, I think I'm a little bit ahead of that person. Or, well, you know, okay, I got a few gold stars as a kid for perfect attendance in Sunday school. I must be pretty good. Or, hey, I've memorized a couple of verses in the Bible. Or, you know, I've been a Christian for a long, long time. We kind of compare ourselves to other people. Jesus says it's a trap. And not only that, but people get hurt when we operate this way. I mean, think about it. If you had a huge log sticking out of your head, picture that for just a second. And you are then going to someone else to try to help them with their issues. And you turn around, you'd whack them upside the head with the log that's sticking out of your eye. That's the, the word picture Jesus has given us. That you've got this beam, the King James says, a beam like a rafter board sticking out of your eye. And you're going for the little splinter, for the speck. For, for maybe something that's significant, certainly it needs to be gotten out of their eye. It's going to hurt them. But we've got this plank, this log, and we swing it around and we whack people upside the head. Tell me that doesn't happen when you're in a relationship with a critical person. People get hurt this way. And that seems kind of humorous and we just think, well, that's ridiculous to even think about. But isn't it true that in our lives when we have these things that we've not cleared up, when we have a spirit that's constantly pointing out to everyone else what they're doing wrong, we in turn don't help them. We hurt them because they're looking at us thinking, who are you? And what right do you have to say that to me? Don't you understand what's protruding from your face? Don't look at me, look at you. And so Jesus says in order to sort of make things right, here's the process that we should go by. He says, confess first. Verse 5 says this way, hypocrite, first take the log out of your eye. Confess, get rid of your sin. Do whatever you can to rid yourself of that. You know, when we confess our sins, maybe, maybe you've experienced this. I know I have. It gives me an appreciation of how human I am. It gives me a, a deeper understanding for people and their struggles when I realize I've got just as many as they do. And, and, I, and it gives me a little bit more graciousness toward them. And it helps me to, to have better relationships. Because I, I think when Jesus talks about this, he, he sort of shows us that if we have unconfessed sin in our lives, that not only does it mess up our relationship with God because there's something between us and Him, but regardless of what that unconfessed sin is, we can't operate with people the right way either. And so you may say, well, I don't really know that I have a relationship in which I need to confess sin, but it may be something else. And, and the Bible doesn't speak to what kind of sin we're talking about, and so all I have to go on is it just must mean sin in general. Take the log out of our eye confess first. Some of us today need to confess. And I'm not going to embarrass you and call you out and make you stand up and, and you know, lay it all out, but some of us need to confess maybe to God, maybe to someone else. We just need to get things right, get it off our chest. You know, the, the word confess simply means to agree that what it is is what it is. You're right. There you go. I've confessed it. What God says I did, that's what I did. When the Bible calls it sin, I agree. That's what it is. It doesn't have to be some huge emotional experience where everybody crowds around you and wonders what's wrong with you, just saying, you know what, God, I, you're right. I agree. So God, Jesus says to confess first and almost in a sense to, to, to yell for somebody, get this log out of my eye. Jesus is the only one who can do that. You know, we can confess to one another all day long, but Jesus is the only one that can rid us of that sin. 
can cleanse us, the Bible says, from all unrighteousness. He's the only one. And so take your sin to him, no matter what it is, big, small, whatever you think of it, take it to him. Jesus says, confess first and then help. Then help after that. The end of verse 5 says, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We are bound by love. Understand, we are bound by love to help other people become the Christians God wants them to be. We are bound by love. If we ignore them, if we just let them go on their own, that is one of the more unloving things that we can do. And yet Jesus says, get it in order. Confess first. Let your heart be softened toward that person so that then you will have a realistic view. You'll be able to help them standing on level ground. What would life be like if we had no one in our lives who would help us to see what's going wrong? That's part of my job each Sunday. Though I don't stand on any ground except that the step is up a little bit so you can actually see me because I'm not very tall. And I stand on level ground with you. And so when I come, I have done my best to confess my sin to the Lord and say, God, I'm no better than anybody else. You've given me the opportunity. But that's part of my job is to help us to maybe see what the Scripture says and maybe how we've got a speck in our eye. You have people like that in your life too. You've been that for other folks. If you've been a leader or a parent or a grandparent and you've had kids or something, someone in your Sunday school class or whatever it may be, that's what you do. You help them get the speck out of their eye. The Bible's not saying just leave it and don't worry about it. I mean, if you ever had something in your eye, that hurts. It's no good. It's not something that you want to have. It can cause permanent damage. And so we need those folks. Jesus is not saying ignore it altogether. He says confess first and then help. Now, the flip side of this is what some people say, and I've heard this before. Well, I really feel like God has, he wants me to get involved in a certain area, maybe with the church or maybe with a person or whatever it may be. But you know, I mean, who am I to tell them what to do? You know, I'm not perfect. You know, I mean, I, I don't really know. I mean, why are they going to listen to me? The Bible doesn't say you have to be perfect. In fact, none of us are. The Bible says we've all sinned, every single one of us. Jesus is the only perfect person that's ever lived, and, and, and we all fall short, the Bible says. So this is not saying you need to be absolutely perfect before you go and teach that class. You need to be absolutely perfect before you go and pray for that person. You need to be absolutely perfect before when they come to you and ask you a question, you give a response. Well, I don't know. I'm not perfect. The Bible simply says confess first and then help. Do the best you can to maintain a clear conscience before God and then help other people. So some of us maybe today need to get involved with a particular area, be it here at church or with folks in our lives, simply because we need to love them and help them out. Those who are in the habit of confessing sin, as you well know, probably experienced, they'll be gentle and gracious toward other people. And then verse 6, which is a difficult verse because it sometimes doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. Jesus says, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them with their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. The idea here is that we need to learn to discern. He doesn't say suspend all your intellectual faculties and just be ignorant through the rest of your life. He says there are some people whose character we need to really discern. And when he says don't throw what is holy to dogs or your pearls before pigs, basically what he's talking about is those who have, have vehemently, who have adamantly, violently, even defiantly rejected the gospel, Jesus says, that's enough. That's enough. He told his disciples when he sent them out, if they receive you, go in. If not, shake the dust off your feet and move on. Now, this is not an excuse for lack of evangelism because this is a very, very small group of people. And the Bible is clear that we must first take the gospel to them to find out if they will receive or reject in the first place. 
I had this happen to me when I was a youth pastor years ago. There was a young man whose mother was on the church staff with me. And he was a, a young man who had, he was troubled, lots of issues in his life. But I got to the point where over and over and over again, I would approach him and try to do all that I could. And it, and it got to the point where his, his rejection of the gospel took me back to this verse. And I, I, I remember just praying through that and praying for him. And I remember the Lord just saying, you know what? Back off. It's, it's time. Let it go. He has rejected it violently. And that happens very rarely. Later on, about a year later or so, that young man, after no conversation for about a year, I just I, I would acknowledge him and say hello, but that was about it. I no longer pursued him. And, and about a year later, he came to me, and he, he just wanted to talk. And I have no idea what prompted him. I've, I've, our relationship after that was great. And I don't know. I'm not saying that this is something that you've got people in your life, and you say, well, there's my excuse not to talk to them ever again. There you go. They're, they're a dog or a pig, you know, and, and I'm not supposed to throw holiness and pearls before them, you know. That can lead us back to the critical spirit. But Jesus is saying, look, don't be critical, but be discerning. Understand people. We've got to go after them first with the gospel to find out. And so he, he says, here's the specific stuff. Avoid criticism, confess your sin first, then help other people discern their character and so on. And then he gives us something to think about. And this is interesting in verse 7. Look at it. It says, keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep searching and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who searches finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. What man among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil or sinful know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He gives us something to think about. And in summation, it's this, to consider what God does for us. In the context of personal relationships, he gets specific first. So look, avoid criticism, confess your sin first, and then try to help somebody else. Be discerning, but confess. And then he says, here's the deal. Consider what God does for you. Uh, the scripture just lists several things. First of all, he, he gives. God gives to us. He said, ask and you will receive, for he who asks receives. You know, God sets the example in generosity. We cannot outgive God, and that's a cliche, but that's the truth. We cannot outgive him. No matter how gracious and how generous you think you are or I think I am, God has been more gracious and generous because we deserved absolute death and punishment for all eternity. And you know what he gave? His only son, who was perfect, who did nothing wrong, who took our sin. God is more generous than we can imagine. And he says, when you ask, you will receive. He meets our needs. Now, this is not a blank check. Some of you are thinking, man, this is good stuff today. I don't have to talk to that person anymore because they're a dog and a pig. And I get to get whatever I want from God. Whoever asks will receive. Man, what a deal. Now, he's not talking about a blank check. Because you know, if you've read the New Testament whatsoever, that Jesus says that if we are in right relationship with God, submissive to his will, longing to do what he wants us to do, then with that attitude and with that approach, then when we ask, of course, our, our asking will be a little bit different. Our requests will be a little bit different. And we'll then receive from God what he's designed for us to receive in the first place. So this is not a blank check. So don't walk away and be disappointed when you walk away from, from church today and you begin to ask for all the things you've always wanted. And Jesus says you have not because you ask not and you, uh, you, you have not because you ask with the wrong motives. And so he says he will give, but we need to be in right relationship with him. Not only does he give, he reveals, seek, and you will find. He says he'll show you the way to go. 
Some of us are lost today. We may know Jesus, but we're lost. We have no clue where we're going in life. We have no idea what it is that God really wants for us. What do you want? He says, if you seek, you'll find. And the harder we seek, these are, these are words that say, keep on seek, keep on asking, keep on going. The more we seek him, the more we discover. Not only does he reveal, but he opens, knock, and it will be open to you. God opens doors no one else can. You ever experienced that? Experience where you just thought there's no way out of this situation. There's no way forward whatsoever, and God opens the door. And God begins to work in the situation. Knock, and it will be open to you. Sometimes we wonder how we're going to make it, and then God opens the way for us. He opens, not only that, but he knows. Verses 9 to 11 talk about a father who knows what his children need. And what father, if the son asked for bread, would give him a stone, or asked for a fish, would give him a snake? God knows what we need. He is our perfect father. Some of us have had great fathers. Some of us have not. But all of us have a perfect father. Some of us say, well, I don't have a very good view of God because my father was this or my father was that. Look at what the Bible says. Look to your ultimate father. He knows what you need. And I'm thankful that when I ask, I don't always get what I ask for. Because God not only is gracious and generous in giving us, but he's wise in knowing what to give us. You ever ask for something and didn't get it and then thank God later on you didn't get it? Garth Brooks wrote a great song about that years ago. Thank God for unanswered prayers, you know. I mean, that's the way it is. God loves us too much to give us every single thing we ask for. But he loves us enough to give us every single thing that he knows we need. He is our ultimate father. Not only that, but in summary, he loves. And this is the basis of his dealing with all of us. God, though he is a judge, though he is righteous and holy, he leads with love. That's the way he pursues us. God so loved the world, and as a result, he gave. While we were still sinners, Jesus demonstrated his love, and he went to the cross. He leads with love, his faithful love, and he loves us, and it's hard to believe for some of us, he loves us more than our earthly fathers ever could. And I think of my own children and realize that I am a very dim reflection of the love of God. And I love them and would would stand in the middle of traffic all day long if that's what was required. Take a bullet, do whatever I could do to protect my children and love them, express my love to them. But I am a dim reflection. God loves us more than I could ever love my children, more than your father loved you, more than you love your children. And if you ever have a vacuum of love in your life from a father or grandfather, whomever it may be, God says he loves you. Sometimes our... Our relationships get a little out of whack, I think, because we forget what God does for us. And Jesus leads up to verse 12, and he says this, Therefore, considering what God has done, considering the specifics I've given you, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. This is the law and the prophets. Therefore, in light of all the other stuff, therefore, do for others what you would want them to do for you. There are a few things that I, that I notice when I read this particular verse. This is a theme that runs throughout the Bible, that love for God and love for people are inseparable. They are inseparable. You cannot separate those two throughout the Bible. I want to show you. These verses won't be on the screen, and you don't have to feel like you have to turn there, but maybe if you write the references down, it might help. You can go back a little bit later. Exodus chapter 20. 
It's a very familiar passage to many of us. We've memorized these. They are the Ten Commandments. The first four, have no other gods before me, make no idols, don't misuse the name of the Lord, remember to dedicate the Sabbath day. First four, about love for God, relation to Him. The next six, honor your father and mother, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony against your neighbor, and do not covet anything about your neighbor, all about relating to other people and loving them. Even the Ten Commandments show that it's inseparable. Our love for God must result in love for people. If we do the first four, we have to do the last six. Absolutely, they are inseparable. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus himself will say this in response to a question. Matthew 22, the verses are 41 to 44. Jesus has posed the question by one of the religious leaders of the day, and you're probably familiar with this passage as well. And it says, while the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them. Excuse me, Matthew chapter, did I say chapter 22? I believe I've written it down wrong. Should be. Naturally, you know that's two weeks in a row I've done that? Some of you are keeping tabs. I appreciate you not being critical. How about that? Here we go. I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 22 Verse 34, I wrote it down a little bit wrong. Here we go. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together in the same place. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. But he didn't stop there. The second is like it. The guy only asked for one, by the way. Don't, don't miss that. He asked for which one is the greatest. Jesus says, well, there, it's, it's sort of one and one A. There is a greatest, and then the second one follows closely behind it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. It's inseparable. And then in 1 John chapter 2, and I did not write this one down incorrectly, so you're good to go here. 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. John says this, The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in darkness, and doesn't know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Love for God and love for people is inseparable. Throughout the Bible, we cannot claim that we love God with all we are. But I hate that guy right over there. Man, I can't stand him at all. You understand what he's done to me? I can't stand him. There is a disconnect when we begin to operate that way. Are there people in our lives we're not going to get along with? Sure. I'm not discounting that. I'm not discounting what's been done to you. I understand all that. And in some way, we've all had those situations and opportunities to hate what the Bible says, hate our brother. But love for God and love for people are inseparable. They're always connected in the Bible. When we look, we are to have love for God. Immediately follow, we are to have love for people. When I read verse 12, I realize that. But I also realize this, there are no guarantees. There are no guarantees. Just because you operate by this principle doesn't mean everybody else is going to as well. You probably picked up on that in life. You probably noticed that by now if you've been around a little while. Just because you operate with love toward other people does not mean it's going to be returned. But we have to realize and remember that we are not bound and judged by humanity, but by God himself. And when he says that we are to love people, 
that we are to do for others what we would want them to do for us. It makes no difference what they do to us in return. We are still bound by this principle. And those who truly love people aren't worried about a guarantee of it being returned. And that's hard. That's an obstacle for some of us to overcome today. Not only are there no guarantees, but as you well know, this does not come naturally. If we were to walk over to the nursery right now and take all the toys out of the room, except one, you would find out how quickly that by nature we are critical, selfish, and want only what we want. Mine, they would all say, and they would fight. I know maybe your kids are different than mine, but I know how it goes in my house. You know, sometimes they argue and fight over things, you know, that's the way it is. We would find out very quickly that this does not come naturally. You know, there are things in life that do come naturally. When I was playing baseball, the one thing that always came naturally to me was fielding. I could go out right now and I could field and I probably wouldn't miss a whole lot. But hitting was something that did not come naturally to me. I had to work and work and work and work at that. And I still wasn't that good. And I had to work some more and work some more. And I got a little bit better and I had to work and I was marginal at best. There are things that just don't come naturally to us. Society does not promote this idea of doing for others what you would want them to do for you. You know what we say? Do unto others as they have done unto you. And you are justified because who wouldn't? Man, I tell you what, there's something wrong with you if you're not going to return what they, do you understand what they just did to you? It was interesting. I was listening to sports radio the other day and there was a situation that had come about uh, and, and the, the commentator made the point. He said, I can't believe this guy is being like he is. Doesn't he know what this other guy said about him? And they were calling for this public barrage of insults back and forth. Society doesn't want us to live this way. God calls us, however, to be just like that. It does not come naturally, which means it requires work. It requires discipline. This is not a magical formula. You just repeat it over in your head and all of a sudden you are different. It requires discipline. It requires maybe for us to take in a little bit of different stimulus through the day. Monitor what goes into our brain when we begin to feel something towards someone else and say, no, the Bible says whatever I want others to do for me, that's what I need to do for them. There is something that we can do about our habits and we must do it. And Jesus says this is the law and the prophets, which means it covers it all. This covers it all. How can I fix or attempt to fix the relationships in my life or keep them good? This is it. It covers it all. It's like duct tape. Anything can be fixed with duct tape. You realize that? You know, I heard a statement. I was looking online this week. I heard a statement that says, it's not broken. It just lacks duct tape. It's the way it is. You know, they have contests every year to see who can design the best prom outfits made of duct tape. I didn't realize that. Duct tape can do it all. It's amazing. I'm not lying with that. There are people who, who went to prom this past year in a duct tape suit, literally made of duct tape. Amazing. It can do it all. It'll hold anything together. This principle holds it all together. Just like duct tape, you apply this principle to the relationships in your life, and it covers it all. You will be in right relationship with God, and odds are you'll begin to be in right relationship with other people, even those folks where you think it's impossible. And so now what do we need to do? I think it's very simple. Yet as I mentioned at the beginning, it can seem cliche. It can be easily forgotten, and easily overlooked as we walk out of here. Simple truth is this. Figure out what you would want other people to do for you. Take the initiative and start doing it. It's as simple as that. 
I, I wish there was something maybe a little more mystical or spiritual or something that didn't hit home as hard as that, because that's tough to do. But I'll tell you what, the Bible's very clear. Figure out what you want other people to do for you. Take the initiative and start doing it. Try it for a week. We're going to get back together next Sunday. And hopefully you'll be here and you can attest to the fact that over a week, I tried this, and it works. It's not perfect because humans are imperfect. But I tell you what, I tried it. I did the very best I could. And you know that person that I was kind of having it out with a little bit? Things changed just a little bit, or my attitude toward them changed just a tad, or I at least felt like I'm pleasing God with everything that I can do in this relationship. Try it for a week. And if it doesn't work in any way, then you can say, well, Jesus is a liar. But I'll tell you this, it'll work. Because Jesus is not a liar. And when he tells you what it is that we ought to do, it's golden, as the rule says. It's the golden rule. And it'll work, and it'll apply. And if nothing else, it'll change you. And I tell you what, I look at other folks, and I realize then how much I need to be changed. And how many logs are sticking out of my eyes. It'll change you. And so maybe today you'd begin by confessing, as Jesus said, confess first. And it may not be towards somebody else that you've had sin in your life. It may just be sin that nobody else knows about. Confess. Maybe get before God today. In just a moment, you'll be real tempted to say, well, that was great, and let's go eat lunch. I don't really have anything to do. They'll play and sing, and we'll stand and all that. But maybe you need to get before God and say, God, I confess this to you. And God, I'm not leaving here today without giving this to you and having you cover my sin. And then maybe you'd consider what God does for us. Oh, that he, that he gives, that he knows us, that he reveals to us, he opens doors, and he loves us. And in light of that, you would apply this rule that you'd figure out what you want other people to do for you. You'd take the initiative and start doing it for other people. It'll be hard with your family because they're around you all the time. It'll be hard with your close friends probably a little bit easier with strangers. And I think ultimately it'll be probably the hardest when it comes to lost people, people who don't know Jesus. But picture this. If you were a person who was far from Jesus, whether you knew it or not, what would you want people to do for you to get you to him? What doors would you want them to break down? What walls would you want to be crumbled? What would you want Christians, a church, a community, what would you want them doing for you to get you to Jesus? Let that guide your operation toward those people who you know are far from him. The very first verse of Matthew chapter 7 says, Don't judge or you will be judged. And certainly the Bible makes it clear in Romans 14.10 that one day we will all be judged. And so what are you banking on when it comes to that judgment? What are you banking on to get you into heaven? Is it being a good person? The Bible says our good works are just like filthy rags before the Lord. They amount to nothing. But the only way that we can receive salvation is to admit that I am a sinner. And apart from Jesus, I will spend eternity in hell. I will believe in him that he died and was raised again to give me victory over my sin and forgiveness. And then commit my life to him. I'll do whatever I can to live for him. The Bible says that's the only way to come to Jesus. One day you will stand before God. And as we looked at last week, we spend a lot of time worrying about our physical security. I ask you just for a few moments to consider your spiritual security this morning. 
to consider your relationships, to consider eternity? Is there something you need to confess? Is there something that you need to say to the Lord to make things right? Do you need to receive Jesus for the very first time? And as we stand in just a moment and sing, God is working on your heart. If God wants you to respond to him in some way, don't ignore it. Don't let it go in one ear and out the other. Don't forget it. Confess it to God and then go live out this principle in light of what God has done for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm thankful for your words, for the greatest sermon ever, that we can bank our lives on your truth. <clears throat> I'm thankful that, that I can't ever do enough to earn more of your love, and I'm thankful that I can't ever do enough to earn less of your love. And so, Lord, today we praise you and give you thanks for salvation. Lord, we commit to you that we will view our love for you and our love for people as completely inseparable. That as a result of us claiming to love you, that we will in turn love other people. Lord, we will make the commitment to figure out whatever it is we want people to do for us, and we'll begin to take the initiative and go do that for other people. Lord, for those who need deliverance and freedom today, be it based upon this scripture or not, I pray, Lord, that you, that your Holy Spirit would prompt them and speak to them even in this moment. Help us, Lord, if we need to confess, to get things right with you, to do it before we leave here today. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Won't you stand?